This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. The NHL season is about to get going. We are only days away, believe it or not, from the start of the NHL season. And when the NHL season gets going this year, there will be a new team in the league. Vegas Golden Knights, down in the desert with, well, not far away from the Arizona Coyotes. There's a lot of questions about whether or not this franchise is going to succeed. There's a lot of questions about whether or not this thing is going to be able to draw fans beyond the the initial. I mean, there is certain there is no doubt they had 17,000 people at their preseason game last night. That was their first ever home game, and there is clearly an element a a large amount of intrigue and interest up front. But it's new. The new car smell is still going to be there. So there should not be any issues. There should be no issues with being able to get people in early on. But the question is, what is going to happen a year, half a year, a year, two years, two and a half years down the road? What is going to be the acceptance level for a team in the middle of the desert in Las Vegas where there is... There are only a million possible things to do. And, you know, even if you're not going to a show, even if you don't have tickets for this or that, there's, you can go play the slots, you can go to a casino, you can do whatever you're going to do. Is this going to work the way you would hope that it's going to work? Because even those of us up here in Hamilton who have suffered over the years, waiting and hoping for an NHL team that now is apparently never going to come. We still don't want a team to do poorly. We still don't want NHL teams to fall, I don't think. I don't think anyone's rooting for failure. Maybe some are, I don't know. If the if the thought process is, hey, you know what? If the Vegas Golden Knights completely collapse, maybe they'll move the team to Hamilton. I would suggest that you probably still don't hold your breath. There's probably still three or four or five places or 10 or 15 that the NHL would choose to go before they would ever think of coming to Hamilton. Gary Lawless is a former columnist with the Winnipeg Free Press, a former radio show host who decided that he was going to pack up and move down to Las Vegas and join this exciting new opportunity and be part of the Vegas Golden Knights as one of their content guys creating stories and news and stuff for them. He joins us now. Gary, thanks for doing this. And very pl- my pleasure. How's it going? It's going great. Listen, you've, uh, you're, you're a Winnipeg guy, or at least you have been for the last number of years. How's, uh, how's summer in Vegas when you're used to Winnipeg? Uh, well, I'm born and raised in Peterborough, Ontario, and was in Winnipeg for uh, the last 18 years. Um, <clears throat> we kept our, uh, uh, I moved here in June, but we kept our, uh, I purchased a cottage uh, uh, before I got married, and uh, now my wife and daughter call it theirs. So um, uh, they stayed there for the summer, and I went back and visited them whenever I could. Uh, this was a very busy summer for us. So, I bet. Uh, normally I'll spend lots of time uh uh, in Manitoba in the summer, but uh, it's hot here, that's for sure. I, I would think it would. Now, you, you, you talk about how busy a summer it's been. You've you've been up close, and you, of course, you know, you being in Winnipeg, you saw when the Winnipeg Jets re-arrived in Winnipeg, but they already had a lot of their infrastructure in place because the Manitoba Moose were there, and that was kind of at least partly put together. This is really a build from scratch. 
what have you seen? How do you put together a brand new hockey franchise in as short a time as they had? And I don't just mean the team on the ice, the whole infrastructure. It must be massive what's been going on down there. Yeah, well, we're still uh, we're still working on things right to, to this very minute, right? It's uh, we're uh, our production team is uh, you know, fine tuning what what our games are going to look like. Uh, the hockey side of it was pretty easy. George McPhee uh, and Kelly McCrimmon, uh, you know, they put together uh, an all star team of uh, of scouts and executives, and uh, you know, George had some connections with some people from uh, from Washington, and Kelly had uh, you know deep roots throughout uh, Canadian hockey and uh, they put together a real good team real fast and I thought they did an excellent job at the amateur draft at the expansion draft and the amateur draft uh, it's the other stuff it's uh, selling the tickets uh, you know selling the sponsorship deals teaching a market that has never had professional sport how much it costs to to get a luxury suite how much it costs to get uh, uh, a sign on the dasher boards how much it costs to have your name uh, at center race Etc. 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 And it's been, uh, you know, it's been a, a massive undertaking, and um, it's been some people have been here. Todd Pollack, who's our VP of ticketing, I think he's been here for four years working on this, at hmm. least three. And uh, you know, finally we played a hockey game last night, and now you know we all we all got to the office early this morning and said, okay, what went well, what what went wrong, and uh, we started tweaking things and trying to get better, and uh, it's. Uh, it's a huge undertaking and a massive process, but it's been a blast. But Gary, you, you know, you touch on a really interesting point there too. It's not just that you are starting a new franchise, and that would take an immense amount of work anyway. But you're starting a new franchise in a city, as you say, that hasn't. There's no. There's no template for this. There's no background for professional sports in Vegas. So when I, again, I go back to the template. There's really no template for what you guys are doing. Everything has to be new. No, and you know we hired people from you know from our our CMO has a background in the NFL and uh, and Major League Baseball. Our president on the business side, uh, you know, ran the Cleveland Cavaliers and uh, and uh, and all of their entities, which included the Lake Erie Monsters. Um, and he's, he's he had a hockey background. He worked in Dallas and in Carolina, and actually went back to all the way to Milwaukee in the International Hockey or Cleveland in the International Hockey League. So, uh, you know, just a, a real mix of people, uh, uh, George McPhee and Kelly McCrimmon and Murray Craven and Misha Donskov and then all these people on the business side and uh, a lot of meetings and a lot of talking about, hey, this is what we did here, this is what they did there and, you know, what works best for us and then taking it to the marketplace and seeing what they had to say and sometimes they loved it and sometimes we had to get back in the, back, go back to the drawing board and start over again and it's been... Uh, it's been a lot of trial and uh, and some error, but uh, a lot of success as well. There were we announced seventeen thousand one hundred and one last night for a preseason game. I, I, I guess there were fifteen thousand in the building, but uh, it was uh, it was alive. Uh, the square um, in front of, of T-Mobile Arena. It's called Toshiba Plaza. At five o'clock last night, there were a couple of thousand people out there drinking beer and buying food off of food trucks and. Uh, and dancing to uh, to a live DJ, and this is for a preseason game. Like, look, wait till wait till things get get amped up, and wait till a couple of years down the road when the team's in a in a playoff game. It's going to be uh, it's going to be one of the best uh, hockey experiences uh, in the world because there's so much uh, around our arena. You know, you talked about a sports, hospitality, entertainment district. The 
this is the greatest in the world. Well, if I mean, if it works, and I know you believe it will, but if it does, we saw what happened with Nashville this last spring. Yeah, for sure. If isn't uh, isn't in the equation for for me, I, you know, I'm 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 here. I'm seeing the people that are involved. I, Mr. Foley is uh, is it, this isn't. Uh, uh, how do I get someone else to pay for this? He, he, you know, he's a, he's a billionaire and he understands how prof- major professional sports works and he's willing to pay for it. And the community's going to respond to that or is responding to that. This isn't like other franchise operations where, you know, they barely had enough money and, and, and barely had enough of a plan to get it going. This is completely different than that. Well, and you have, I mean, clearly, you have pulled up stakes. You had a great job. You had two great jobs up in Winnipeg. You were established there. You've you've bought in wholeheartedly, and that's very clear. Um, and you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, there have been a lot of skeptics and a lot of naysayers who say, look, just down the road in Phoenix or in Glendale, a hockey team in the desert has really struggled. Why, why do you, where's the difference? Why will, why will Las Vegas or no, Vegas work? I, I get, I'm surprised you're asking the question. Like, where is the arena in, in Arizona? In the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, our, our, ours is on, <laughs> ours is on the Las Vegas strip, uh, the, the it's a, a city of 2.2 million. Um, you know, the Oakland Raiders are coming here too. Right? Yes, <laughs> this is this isn't a this isn't a maybe market. This is this is a slam dunk market. It's uh, uh, it's the, the arena is state of the art. Uh, you know, we, we've sold over 14,000 season tickets this year. All of our games are going to be sold out. Uh, it's um, you know, we, we signed a huge broadcasting deal that stretches. Uh, uh, it covers all of Nevada, part of California, part of Arizona, all of Wyoming, all of Montana, all of Idaho, all of Utah. Uh, this is going to be a global brand, not just a, not just a, uh, not just a provincial or uh, or a regional brand. I did read a, a piece today that I thought was very interesting, which suggested that, and not surprisingly, that um, Vegas is being seen already as the road trip destination for people who want to go and see their team play somewhere. And, and is that part of the business model there that you will have a fair number, a good number of local fans, but we know there's going to be a lot of people visiting and coming to see their team too. No, much the exact opposite. We, we want to sell all our tickets here so that like, who wants to have 4,000 Montreal Canadiens fans? <laughs> Maybe the Montreal Canadiens, not, yep. not Vegas, not Winnipeg, not Toronto. Not, not Anaheim. You know, I, like uh, um, I read an article today that talked about the fact that there were no signs at the airport when you get off the plane saying, "Hey, Vegas hockey, our tickets are already sold. <laughs> we don't want you to get off the plane and be able to go and grab tickets to a game." And that's, um, you know, that's that, that's not the business model at all. The business model is there are 2.2 million people here. It's a it's a growing community. They're starved for their own sports team. Like you go into a bar here, and the bartender will have a Golden Knights hat or a T-shirt on, and you ask him uh, why why that team. And he's like, because that team was born here. That team is ours. And uh, that, there's a major distinction between uh, the Golden Knights and the Raiders. The, the Raiders are the Oakland Raiders, and for me and for you, Scott, they're always going to be the Oakland Raiders. Yep. Maybe maybe the Los Angeles Raiders. You know, you're going to remember Mark Salen and and Ted Hendricks and Lyle Alzado. Yep. You know what I mean, and they're, they're not they're not Las Vegas guys. That's not where their legacy, where their history is. The history of 
the Golden Knights is born in Vegas and will and will will move on uh, and always be part of Vegas. Vegas will always be part of its story and it'll always be rooted in Vegas. That's a major difference. Is that making it easier for you personally with what you're doing as one of the guys who's doing broadca- broadcast but writing and doing stuff on your news for the team? If you've got people that are already intrigued and wanting to follow along and, and as you say, passionate about this, that would seem to make spreading the news a whole lot easier than if it was a team that you really had to go out and grind away at. If people are already interested, that, that should make getting the, the stuff out there a lot easier. The best way for me to describe this, and there's no other way to describe it without uh, explaining what my situation was in Winnipeg in Canada. You know, I was, uh, uh, I worked for the Winnipeg Free Press for 15 years, uh, was a call on the stair, started my own radio show with my business partner uh, and co-host, uh, Andrew Patterson. Um, and then uh, the Winnipeg Jets came back and... Uh, you know, I started getting a little bit of TV work on TSN, and then TSN decided, you know what, we don't want you to uh, write anywhere else or talk anywhere else. You're going to work for us. So I, when I left, at the end of my time there, I was uh, I was working for TSN full time. I was uh, an insider on their CFL broadcast. I, you know, did national TV hits on football, and and then on on the hockey side, I was uh, I was on the Jets all the Jets broadcast, and I did that hockey. And, Sports Center, and you know I, that that medium makes you known. And uh, I, I could, you know, get off a plane anywhere in Canada. And people wanted to talk to me about uh, about about hockey or about football, and um, and it was fantastic, and I, I loved it. And it was one of the things that I thought I'm going to miss that when I first get to Vegas. Well, last night I walked out onto Toshiba Plaza, uh, and I couldn't go five feet without someone saying. Hey, uh, can I get a picture with you? Hey, I love your Facebook lives. Hey, we uh, we love the stories you're writing. We like the the work you're doing on the radio, and we like the we saw you on the TV broadcast, and we think that's cool too. So it's it, like I had a feeling in Canada that you know, I mean, I knew wherever I went, people are going to want to talk to me about about the CFL and about the NHL. Well, now that's in Vegas already, and I I only got here in June. We, we've only had one. We've only had one home game. Yeah. And yeah. Already, uh, listen, me and Shane Knighty and uh, Dave Gosher, uh, they're, our, they're our, our broadcast team on uh, on TV. We went out for a beer last night to an Irish pub called McMullins on Tropicana, and uh, I had 50 bucks in my pocket when I walked in, and uh, I uh, I couldn't spend it. Like, no no one would let us buy a beer. It's uh, People are, are really enthused about what's going on here. Some of your my friends in Hamilton will say uh, that I I fixed that and I'm a, I'm a cheap guy and I would I wouldn't have uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have spent this back even if I could have but uh, that's not the case I, on this occasion uh, you know I tried to get the money out of my pocket and it just didn't happen so uh, people are uh, people are really excited about this if if and if they're that passionate about it already is that also letting you not have to sometimes when teams have started especially hockey teams in non-hockey markets the guys who go there are the women who go there and they are working in the media the beginning of their job is spent explaining the game to people because there's an assumption that they don't know if people are this passionate are you being able to kind of skip that because they've already figured it they either know it they either are fans or they're figuring it out on their own so there's 2.2 million people in Vegas 
they say that 700,000 of them are from Chicago East. <laughs> okay. And, uh, so those people know, but they know hockey just as well as, as they do in Hamilton or uh, Miramichi. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, th- this is, uh, th- this is a, a cosmopolitan place with people from all over the world. And we only ask 17,500 to come to each game and another, uh, another half a million to watch at home uh, on TV. Uh, every night if we're, if we're doing really well. And that's, uh, there's more than enough of a hockey base for that. Just before I let you go, one more thing. Uh, do you have anything to do with the Vegas Golden Knights Twitter account? No, no. Because no, I got to tell no, you, no. Uh, you guys, that. I have the voice of reason that screams. <laughs> uh, uh, I call him Felonious Gru. He's our evil genius, our criminal genius. I'm like, you can't say that. Oh, but it was hilarious! You get the the, the the Twitter game has been outstanding for the Knights so far. He's, uh, Dan Marassa, he's doing uh, uh, a fantastic job. Listen, it's not by accident. He's not sitting there. Oh, I'm going to tweak this. He sits there and thinks about this all day, and he's got a strategy. And now he knows what people respond to. Um, you know, it's uh, he's doing a great job. It is certainly. Uh, listen, if if people hadn't been paying attention, if they'd kind of forgotten that hockey season was getting close. I think the tweet last week about with the Canadians, the little back and forth, certainly reminded people that A, Vegas is uh, in the NHL this year, and B, that uh, they have a pretty good sense of humor about this whole thing, and uh, people should be at, if following the games, but also following the Twitter feed, and um, and also following Gary Lawless. You can uh, What's your Twitter handle? At Gary Lawless. At, very simple, at Gary Lawless. Uh, you can also go to the website. There is uh, Vegas Golden Knights website. You can find his stuff there. Listen, Gary, I, I hope this year is, uh, is fantastic for you. It's, it's, it's exciting the opportunity you have in this uh, to, to be at the ground floor for something like this. And by the sounds of it, um, you know, a lot of the consternation that a lot of people have had, um, maybe no need for it whatsoever, which, is, uh, which is, is encouraging, to be honest. It really is. Well, I got to wife and a daughter that uh, are counting on me to put uh, put uh, wieners and wien on, <laughs> wieners and beans on the table for the next uh, next 20 years or so, so I hope it all works out. Gary Lawless of the Vegas Golden Knights. Really appreciate the time, Gary. Thanks for doing this. Take care, Scott. Bye. That is a, um, you know, that's really interesting because there has been a lot, there has been a lot of talk about whether or not Vegas is going to be able to work as a hockey market. And the most interesting thing to me that Gary said in that whole discussion is that they are not looking to have fans of other teams be coming in there to plump up the numbers and prop up the business model. And why that's interesting, because that seems to be, now I understand what he's saying. You don't want to have 4,000 fans of the other team. You don't want it to be like the Ottawa Senators building, quite frankly, where you know, when the Leafs play in there, it sounds like it's at a home game for the Leafs. I, I certainly, that's that makes all kinds of sense. But at the same time, there was this piece that I read that was talking about Vegas is going to be the travel destination for NHL fans. If you're going to have a getaway weekend with the boys or with the girls, Vegas is the place you're going to, you're going to look on the calendar, you're going to look on the schedule and say, okay, when are they playing in Vegas? And let's go make a few days of it then and we'll do the game in the middle of that. If, if if Gary's right, and I'm going to believe him, he's down there. If Gary is right and it's exceptionally difficult to get tickets, that's a that's good news, I suppose, for the local market. I 
again, I'm, I'm, we will see. We will see. I, I, if all the things that Gary says are true, and again, I believe him, he's a very credible guy. He's a trustworthy guy. He's done a lot of work in the media. He's built up a credibility that he deserves any benefit of the doubt that, that we want to give him. So let's take everything, everything he said at face value and believe it. And I will. The one area that I still think, um, that I'm going to be looking at is two or three or four years from now, if there are still growing pains and after the Raiders move to Vegas and start attracting attention, can they still put 17,500 people in that building? That is going to be the test. I think they probably, I think it's reasonable to believe they can, but I also think that at some point they will, or they may need to have some of those visiting fans helping out a little bit. It may not be the business model, and I could be totally wrong. They could. This thing could be, it's the Golden Knights, it could be a gold mine. It could be the casino of all casinos as far as pulling triple sevens. Listen, we sell out every game. That would be, for the NHL, what could be better than that? What could be better than that for the NHL? We'll see. Played their first game last night, preseason game, early early October. The second, maybe the third, is their first actual real game. Then it gets very interesting. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We are five months, something like that. Five, four, five, six, somewhere in there. Months away from the Winter Olympics starting. We're still a ways away from the Olympics starting. And yet my next guest is already with the national Canadian national women's hockey team centralized in Calgary, already working towards that goal. We're not even thinking Olympics yet, and she is fully immersed in the whole Olympic thing. Her name is Sarah Nurse. Uh, she is from Hamilton. She is a hockey player. She joins me now. Sarah, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, thank you for having me. Um You've been on the national women's team. You've played for the national women's team before, but I got to believe that when you get into something like this and you're centralized and they take you away from life, basically, and dump you into this five-month boot camp, it's a little more intense than probably a lot of other things people do in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely been very intense so far, but um, it's just an amazing experience to be to be a part of. I think of all the other um, Olympic teams that have come before me, they've all gone through this process, and so far it's been successful for Canada, so I'm excited to be a part of it. For those people who don't know the whole centralization concept, explain what it is. Yeah, basically um, the centralization roster is a short list, so there are 28 of us, and they have to cut it down to 23 before um, they release the official Olympic roster. So the 28 of us are here training, uh, practicing, playing games uh, for the next few months uh, leading up to the Olympics. And is it, in, is it in, basically, in, is your entire life basically those 28 people plus the coaching staff and support staff? Is it, is it very sort of introspective when you're there? Yeah, I mean, we do spend a lot of uh, time with each other. We're at the rink um, in the morning until the late afternoon. So we definitely spend a lot of time with each other, but um, the relationships and the kind of bonds that are forming are, are really great. So tell me that. You, you say you get there in the morning. Walk me through a day. Again, we're, we are, and people forget this, and I keep mentioning it because I think it's when it comes time that people turn on their TVs for the Olympics in February, right? It's February? Right. When they turn on their TVs in February and they go, okay, I'm ready now, I'll pu- fire up the popcorn. You guys have been at this for 
forever. And we don't think about that, but walk me through a day. What time, what time are you up in the morning and walk me through what you do on a typical day now that you're doing every day up until February? Yeah, so our schedule is starting to change now just because um, we actually play in a midget boys league. So we play a season with them and we have about 50-something games. Um, but normally on a practice day, I'd be up at around 8, um, get strength by 9.15, warm up, do all that fun stuff, practice for about two hours, uh, have lunch. We usually have some sort of meeting, uh, video session, debrief kind of thing for about an hour and a half. And then to finish off the day, we work, work out for an hour and a half in the gym. This far away from the Olympics, is it tough though to remain, to sort of to maintain a level of intensity every single day? Because even even when you feel like you really want to do it, there's got to be times you look at the calendar and go, "It is four months <laughs> until we're in yeah. the Olympics." Is it tough to maintain that level every day? I guess it's really funny because uh, I mean, you talk about how far it is away in four months, and I think for us, this is a four-year process. Um, this kind of preparation almost started four years ago after the after the last Olympics. So I think we're actually in the final stretch now and um, just in the preparation for the actual Olympics. So for us, it's really exciting because it's truly not that far away. Well, okay. So four years ago, uh, you were just, if I've got this right, were you, when the last Olympics were played, were you just graduating high school? Because you've just finished your fourth year at Wisconsin, correct? Yes. I just, I believe I just started my first year at school. Okay. So you were in the middle of your first year when the Olympics were on. At that point, was it already in your mind as you're watching those Olympics, were you already thinking, I'm going to be on that next team? It was more of, I want to be on the next team. Um, I think I had a transition year in between my year of high school and college. So I didn't really know where hockey was going to take me, but I think that first year of college and seeing um, my results and my progress and how, how far I'd come, um, it was more of I want to be on that team and I want to keep working and progressing to be able to be on that team. So you say, again, it's the end. We, we think of it as still a ways out. You say it's it's the last stretch. But okay, even in the last stretch, because it is, it is a stretch and it is a little bit different when you're centralized, mm-hmm. how do the coaches maintain that level? How do they keep everybody that fired up for that length of time? I guess just, thinking about how far we've come. Um, the 28 of us have been together for the last four years, as we said, um, and gradually it's, the list has gotten shorter. So we started with 60 or 70 girls uh, mm. four years ago. And so it's kind of seeing that process of how far we've come together and, you know, we're in the final stretch now. So it, it's kind of go time. I, I, I was going to say, how often have they showed you the video of Laura Fortino passing it to Marie-Philippe Poulin? Is that thing yeah. burned into your brain now every day <laughs> before it. practice? That's what we're doing. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> it, that was a huge goal. Definitely a huge goal. Is it still, I mean, ho- women's hockey, uh, there's no doubt that it's been improving around the world. Sweden is getting better. Finland is getting better. A lot there's, you know, there's Russia is getting better, but honestly, is it still when you're at, w- with a lot of the stuff that is happening at centralization is a lot of the concentration, most of the concentration is still on beating the U S um, I would say so. I mean, we play six games against them um, in the upcoming months leading up to the Olympics. So, of course, um, when we do certain things, when we pre-scout, things like that, of course, it's going to be um, against the Americans and thinking of the Americans in the back of our head. Um, but definitely there are four or five games until the gold medal game, and we're not guaranteed a spot. The Americans aren't guaranteed a spot. So we have to kind of focus at the ultimate goal, which is a gold medal, and kind of focus on what we can control and focus on our game. You mentioned a couple times now that you've got 28 
women who are there and you're getting very close and you are spending a lot of time and the bonds are growing and everything else. And the weird part about this though, is that as you say, not everybody, there are more women there at camp than there are spots for in the Olympics. And that, that's gotta be a bit of a weird dynamic when you are really, really, really close friends with all these people. And yet you're looking around saying some of us are not going to be there. How does that work? Yeah, I guess releases are always kind of at the back of everyone's mind. Um, I think Hockey Canada and our GM and our coaches laid out a pretty good plan on the way things are going to happen. And so I think just it's really important for us to build those bonds and build those connections because at the end of the day, yes, 28 of us aren't going to be there. But I think in February, if everything doesn't work out, I couldn't imagine not wanting the best for those 23 to get to go to the Olympics. And so I think that's been the most important thing for us. In the meantime, do you get paid for this? Um, we have some funding from our provincial branches and also Sport Canada. So that's been definitely beneficial and very helpful for us. But not, not like a salary. You're not like, it's, I mean, even though it's obviously not the money from an NHL player, you're not getting a salary like a pro hockey player would. No, you're correct. That's tough. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to think of all the time. And again, not you per se, but for someone who puts in all that time and then doesn't actually get chosen at the end and hasn't actually got twenty or 30000 bucks in the bank for what they've put right. in, that's a tough pill to swallow at the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I think for me, just being in a little bit of a different position, just coming out of college, you know, I don't have a ton of expenses, but for somebody who may have left a job for this, um, yeah, it's definitely very daunting. Now, a lot of people, uh, we're talking with Sarah Nurse, who is at the centralization camp for Team Canada. And I mean, obviously, I don't want to go into it all because I know you're sick to death of talking about it probably, but um, your last name is Nurse and you are related to Darnell and Kia and Isaac. By the way, your uh, your brother scored the Bulldogs' first game of the year this year. I, I, I'm sure I you know that, that, right? You saw that? <laughs> very, yeah, shorthanded. Very nicely done. Yeah. yeah. So the nurses are everywhere right now. Um the name doesn't matter though when you're stepping on the ice here. So I, I don't think I don't think that having the last name Nurse on the shirt is going to buy you anything extra. So how do you try to stand out there? I mean, is it purely just on performance on the ice, or is there something else they've said they're looking for? I think Hockey Canada looks for the all-around person. Um, you know, they're not going to take somebody who may not be the nicest person off the ice, or um, you know, if you're nice, if you're not nice off the ice and you're good on the ice, you know, they still may not take you. Um, I think they're looking for the all-around person. And ultimately, you've done things to get yourself here. And so they know those things. They know your strengths. They know your weaknesses. And so I think they're going to decide from that. What, I mean, even before now, because again, let's you're talking about the long range here that you've been at this for four years. You've been at this for a lot longer than four years, but specifically four years. As you're doing stuff, even at Wisconsin, when you're at university, are there things you were doing to make sure you were noticed by Team Canada? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, I think my role at school um, is definitely different from what it is here. Um, so I think just excelling at your role. Um, not everybody can be the scorer on the team. Not everybody can be the penalty killer, the forechecker. You know, people need to play their roles. And so I think going through this process, they've wanted to see people excel in their roles, no matter what what role they're given. So I think that's been the most important thing for me. And what has your role, have they defined a role for you at this point or is it, are you still feeling that out? Yeah, I guess just for me, I'm still feeling it out, but you can kind of tell um, they have a lot of returning players from the last Olympic team. 
you know, they kind of have a core six, four, top six forwards, you know, those are the goal scorers, those are the penalty killers. So I don't believe that I'm a part of that group. I think I have a different role, um, more on the defensive side, the penalty killing side. And so I think I've just been trying to go every day and excel in that role. And that, that can be tough because you have been a big time goal scorer at university. Yes. It's a change. <laughs> no, I mean, it's yeah. a change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're, I mean, clearly you're okay with that. I mean, if it's, listen, if, if it gets me to the Olympics, I'll wash bottles probably if you, <laughs> I mean, a lot yeah. of people would say. Yeah, I think it's funny. Um, there are very few players who haven't had their role changed throughout their lifetime. Mm. You know, uh, this has happened to me before with the national team. I played completely different roles. Um, the team from the U22 development team played completely different roles. So I think I've been exposed to a lot of things and I think that's been very beneficial for me. One of the things that I find really interesting about this, and one of the reasons, I'll be honest, I really wanted to have you on today, uh, is because back in 1990, when the IIHF had their first sanctioned Women's World Championships, when Team Canada actually wore pink uniforms, which I still find, I don't know whether I find it hilarious or disconcerting, but it's one (laughs) or the other. Um, Kathy Phillips, who was from Burlington, was the goalie for that team, and she was sort of the first local star, and then she was out of hockey and Becky Keller came along and Becky Keller was our local star player. And then Becky kind of, you know, her time came and went and Laura Fortino, as we mentioned now, made well now for the first time, there's three local players because there's you and Renata fast and Laura Fortino and that's new. And I'm wondering what has happened with Hamilton slash Burlington women's hockey that suddenly we are pumping out a, you know, a decent percentage, three out of 28, when you consider that this is from coast to coast in the country, is a fair percentage of who's at camp. What have we been doing around here that's doing so well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely very exciting for the three of us to be here together. And I think, I think honestly, um, for me and Laura, we both went through the Stony Creek um, Girls Hockey Association, and they had coaches in the band of midget um, junior level who really equipped us to not only get to the next level with NCAA in college, but also to get out in the work world. Um, and then ultimately for us, our path was to the national team. And so I think just those, those coaches through the developmental years, um, really assisted us. Is there anything, so is most of what's happening to really jumpstart the high level, the elite girls hockey players, is it happening at the later levels then, or is it happening now at younger and younger levels around here? Um, I think a little bit of both. I think uh, just the kind of surge of women's hockey being so relevant. You know, when I was younger, they didn't have girls leagues. They didn't have girls teams. So I think that has become so much more popular, and girls are getting into hockey at a younger age and getting to be on teams at younger ages. And I think that's amazing. And also at those older ages, you know, they're teaching us to take certain steps to achieve our goals. Um, They're helping us on ice, off the ice, and I think it's been amazing. Did you play boys hockey at any point? I did. I played boys hockey until, I want to say grade five or six. Really? Yeah. What level? Um, I played in, I don't even know if they still have it anymore, the Hamilton Hub League. Oh, Hub League. Okay, sure. Yeah, the single A League. I played in that league for four or five years. And that was and that was because there's just wasn't a uh, a high enough level girls league around or yeah I guess um, when I was really young I don't know if my parents just didn't know but I know you know I went to the hockey school and then I think my cousin played for hub team and I was my our parents were close so I played for in the hub league and then once my dad started getting out and learning about the hockey world you know he learned there were girls teams and I actually had the opportunity to 
I was called an affiliated player, and I also played on a girls' team while I played with the boys. So my transition was actually really smooth to playing all-girls hockey at, at the end. Well, that's two of the three locals, because I know Laura Fortino, up until she was in Bantam, I think, was still playing boys' hockey. So it's, yeah. it's, but that's changed. That's really changed now. You don't, yeah. s- that doesn't happen that much. Who, was there a female player, though, that as you were coming up that you were really looking up to? Did you have a favorite female player, or was there just not enough then that you would have had that? I think back then, uh, when I was younger, I don't think I had that female hockey player to look up to. Um, I don't even know if I thought that female hockey was a thing kind of when I was younger, but definitely growing up, um, hearing about Laura, um, she was somebody that I got to look up to and I actually met when I was probably 13. She was going through the national team and going off to Cornell. And so she was somebody that I was able to look up to. And also obviously the Olympians like Cassie Campbell, um, she's definitely been a huge inspiration. So now that you have played for the national team, now that you've been in the national program for a while, now that you've been away on a university scholarship, and people around here, especially the young female hockey players, know who you are, do you ever get that when you walk into a rink? Do people ever know who you are now? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I think I've kind of, I haven't been home a ton, but I think when I go into rinks, uh, I definitely get, you know, congratulations, like keep it going, like it's awesome. Um, Sometimes I get asked for, advice and tips and I'm definitely more than willing to help people out um I think I just want to kind of spread my knowledge and the things that I've learned about hockey and hockey in Hamilton and so definitely it's been awesome is that a little surreal though yeah for sure um (laughs) to be recognized yeah it's funny because you don't you don't think about it and so you may walk into a rink and you know Somebody may know who you are and you just have absolutely no idea but it's definitely very cool just wait till you make the Olympic team yeah, just uh, every per, everybody that I've talked to from the who's played on the women's hockey team. Wait till you make the women's team, <laughs> and then you come home from the Olympics and you've been on TV that much and everyone's been watching. Yeah, um, you want surreal by the sounds. Now it's not happened to me, but talking to Laura, talking to others, man, it is a um, it, it's amazing how it's changed. Because again, yeah. I don't think if you were to talk to too many of the women who played on that 1990 team in those pink uniforms, they were being recognized. Yeah, for sure. And definitely thank you for them because they've definitely paved the way for us to come and spread the word about women's hockey. Sarah Nurse, who from now until the Olympics, while everyone else is doing their Netflix binge watching and everything else and only waking up to the Olympics in February when they light the torch, Sarah will have been at this for four months, five months, plus four years before then. Remember that when they, uh, when they skate out onto the ice, they didn't sort of just start that week. Um, listen, Sarah, really appreciate the time today and good luck the rest of the way at Centralization. We're cheering for you. Yeah, thank you so much. That is Sarah Nurse. Um, I assume most people have put all the pieces together. There are roughly, give or take, 200 nurse family members who have all excelled in sports, and I'm exaggerating only slightly. Kia Nurse, of course, plays for Canada's national basketball team in Yukon. She is a cousin. Darnell Nurse, who plays for the Edmonton Oilers, is a cousin. Isaac Nurse, who plays for the Hamilton Bulldogs, is Sarah's brother. Sarah plays for Team Canada. Other nurses, there are, I, I can't go through all of them. Dad played for the Ticats. Well, Uncle Richard played for the Ticats. Um, you know what? We need, a, we need a flow chart to be able to explain the whole nurse family sport lineage. But she is now blazing her own way in that. And um, look, it would be amazing. We're hoping 
if all three, Renata Fast, who's from Burlington, and Laura Fortino and Sarah Nurse, if all three of them could make the Olympic team, if all three of them could be in South Korea, man, that would be not just amazing to watch, but that would be unbelievable for the local female hockey community. Absolutely unbelievable because it is... It is fine. It is great. It is wonderful to play on Team Canada's team in the World Championships. It's great to play for Team Canada in the Four Nations Cup and all these other events. In women's hockey, there is absolutely nothing that approaches the exposure that the Olympics brings. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Many of you, some of you, maybe not many, some of you, have probably participated in a Tough Mudder competition or event. I guess, well, it's a competition. But they're usually fun, short-ish, at least short enough that nobody feels like they're too intimidating. But they are obstacle courses that are muddy and dirty and running and all kinds of stuff. Well, now take that. And you've also seen American Ninja Warrior where you have these people who are just the absolute pinnacles of fitness to a point when you look at them and you say, yeah, there is not a chance in a billion years that if I worked out every day, I'm doing that. So mix the two of them and throw in a little bit of that um, CrossFit, which if you've seen any of the CrossFit stuff with those events that you see, you can watch on TV every now and then where they're doing absolutely insane amounts of fitness stuff and many of the people are from Iceland and we can't pronounce their names, but it's all these unbelievably amazing specimens. And now combine them all into one sort of big jumble of fitness and mud and running and everything else. And you have Spartan. Some of you have seen Spartan on TV. They have shown these Spartan races. They are muddy. They are obstacle courses. They are running their teamwork. There are a lot of different things. They are nothing that I can do, but I know someone who can do it. Cynthia Campanero is a woman from Dundas who is a high school teacher in this area. And this weekend, she will be competing in the World Spartan Racing Championships down in Tahoe. She joins me now. Cynthia, thanks for doing this today. No problem. It's my pleasure. Um, did I describe what you do reasonably accurately? Not bad. You made me <laughs> laugh a little bit. Um, but close. I think you need to get rid of the part about you can't ever do this in a million years, and then you'd be spot on. Well, okay, <laughs> who can do that? Because I, I, I'm sort of being funny, but not really. Um, because it really, the people who are in this really are unbelievably fit specimens. They really are. So the ones on TV, absolutely. Um, but if you came to a local OCR race, uh, you would be really surprised. There's every body size and shape and age and ability um, and it, it's just amazing to see. So I think you need to come out to a race and, uh, not to say stop watching TV cause that's amazing. And please tune in <laughs> on Saturday morning, NBC uh, for the Spartan race. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's the neatest part of the sport is that everyone is welcome and it's, uh, the stuff is tough, but it's doable. Okay, for people who have never seen this, and again, Spartan has been on TV, and uh, I mean, I was flipping around not that long ago and came across it, and it's it's riveting. You watch this, and you, again, I, I understand what you're saying, but I look at it and I go, wow, that's, that is just unbelievable. For those who haven't seen it, there is running, there's lots of running, there is lots of mud, as I say, but the obstacles, when we talk about an obstacle course, give an example of a few of the things that as you're doing this course that can be very long, what you have to stop and do. Sure. 
Um, so as you said, there's running, and but again, some people decide that you know I'm going to finish this race. So they might hike and they might walk, and 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 sometimes they might crawl. Um, but we do in Spartan. There's always a, a heavy carry, at least one, sometimes two or three. So they could be sandbags. Um, they use large buckets, and we have to fill them with rocks ourselves up to a certain line, um, and carry them kind of on a mapped out part of the course. It's usually up a significant hill. If you spill the rocks, you're, you have to start start over. Um, there's uh, heavy logs, and you kind of... I pick the prettiest ones, usually. <laughs> <laughs> Try to do the ones without too much awful bark and, and bugs crawling on them. But um, we climb ropes, do monkey bars. I mean, if you went to a park and see some of the stuff what kids do, that's it. we're just being big kids. We get muddy, and some of us, like me, muddier the better. Um, crawling like under barbed wire, and depending on uh, how how merciless the race director feels, sometimes that stuff is really low, and you get some some war wounds, or I call them Spartan kisses, as you finish the race. But um, jump over fire, we do yeah, lots of oh oh, and Spartan is notoriously known for its spear throw, so you hit one shot to hit hit the spear target, which is a hay bale, um, and it has to stick in and. It's 30 burpees. So I've been, um, I've only not done burpees two races this year. Because there's not a lot of places around Dundas that you can just go out and practice a spear throw. Except my backyard. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have room in your backyard to do that? Oh, yes, I do. I have uh, some property. I have monkey bars. I have my big bucket and my gravel pile and a hill. And I have a spear. So yeah, come on out. Kids stay in the house. Mom's practicing the spear chuck right now. No, they're usually on the slack line or, but yeah, yeah, you might, I, I try to get the dog out of my way, but, um, no, it's, it's, you know what, it's like almost any OCR racer that I know that would talk about what we do. Um, we just liken it to just being, having fun again and, and playing and, and I think we can all use a little bit of that in our lives. So I'm getting you out this year. I know it. And, and <laughs> while it's fun, and I, and I believe that you do have fun doing this. I really do. Yeah. Talking to you, it sounds like you have fun. At the same time, uh, you sort of, you're a little bit, I think, sort of underplaying how difficult some of these obstacles are. There are, there are some of these that are unbelievably difficult to be able to complete. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, I do have a lot of fun with it. And um, my students would tell you that, that my version of fun is not quite what the average bear's version of fun is. Um, like I do the beat test for fun. So, um, but I mean, I've had obstacles that have been, that have beaten me. Um, a couple of years ago in Vermont, I had a sandbag carry up a part of a mountain, Killington Mountain. So if you're familiar with Vermont, it's it's not a little hill. And it took me, I think, almost an hour to move this sandbag, 60-pound sandbag, um, about maybe 800 meters. It was grueling. And the men had to carry two of them. So that was, yeah, there's times where you just really shake your head and think, what am I doing here? And then I kind of laugh in my head and sometimes out loud and say, but I paid to do this. I signed up for this. I volunteered for this. And we sort of, as a group, again, the athletes are, it's an amazing community and we support each other and, and we remind each other of that. You know, we chose to be out here and I feel the most alive when I'm being the most challenged in a race. So, and in my training too. And that might sound strange as well, but I don't know. I can't describe it. I, I often wonder what other people do to get that 
sense of accomplishment, that sense of, hmm. um, you know, just wonder that your body is so physically capable, far more capable than you, your mind allows you to believe. Well, what, what's the most time you've ever actually spent in an obstacle though, trying to finish? Yeah, I have this uh, bad record with um, Battle Frog Race. Luckily, it's no more, but there was an obstacle. It's mandatory obstacle completion. Not all races are like that, um, but this one, this particular one was, and I had... Uh, I came up to the the second rig of the course, and so a rig is an assortment of uh, ropes and vertical bars and um, rings and then horizontal bars. Like like have, we see on Ninja Warrior yeah, when they have exactly, to do that stuff. Yeah, and so it's usually, it's a pretty long, it was a pretty long rig, but I had gone through it the first lap of the race, and I, and I had... Uh, I, I managed to get through, no problem. Um, actually, just jumping up to the very first ring was problematic for me. At 5'3", with zero vertical or, or very limited <laughs> vertical, it took me about five jumps to actually reach up to that first ring. But at my second loop of the race, uh, which is now you know at least over an hour into the race, and I'm a bit fatigued and had come off some heavy carries, um, Jerry can carry, and then another obstacle that was very grip-demanding, um, and I came up to this rig, and I fell off just before hitting the bell, and I thought, that's, that's dumb. I just did it. You know, I can do this. So I go up again. It's, you have as many tries as you want. And, um, I mean, the sun was going down. My hands were bleeding. I think I had heat stroke, and I was so very hungry because a race that should have taken me two and a half hours was now taking me almost eight hours. Um, yeah, so about four and a half hours at that particular obstacle wow. until I succumbed and said, okay, take my damn bracelet. I'm, I'm no longer competing. I can cross the finish line, which I did. I got my medal, but I wasn't very happy. <laughs> that, I mean, it's not just that it's physically demanding. There is a, to do this kind of thing, there is a real mental toughness as well, though. There is. And um, I just remind myself, I've done a lot of running, or sorry, reading about ultra running, because I did my first 50 miler this year. And I, the mental game is important to, to practice as well. So I kind of acknowledge that there's pain and, um. Do you like that? I mean, I've talked to, um, uh, Rob Crar, who's an ultra marathoner oh, from, yeah. he went to the school where you actually yeah. teach now. Yeah. Uh, I've talked to him legend. and about pain and he describes it in these ethereal kind of terms that as someone who doesn't really love pain, <laughs> it's difficult to imagine. Are you... Do you find some kind of, I don't even know what the right word is, satisfaction or like, what do you do with pain? How do you deal with that? Um, You know what? No, I don't like it at all. Honestly, I probably have a really low pain threshold, I think. Um, But I just acknowledge that I survive it. So no matter what kind of pain I've ever endured in my life, um, I, I, I know what it feels like and I know it didn't, I didn't, I overcame it. You know, I got through it. So if you just acknowledge that this is okay, this is going to be uncomfortable for the next little while. It's not going to last forever. How much more can I do? How much more can I put my body through? You can do anything for five minutes or sometimes I have to stretch that to 20 minutes or, you know, but um, it's, it's just that mental, that mental strength to continue. And there's times where I want to stop and, and I've had so many training runs where I'm doing hill repeats or I'm carrying something really heavy up a hill and for me personally, I, I like to envision my um, my competitors, and I think, okay, that person is not walking up this hill right now in her training run. She's running, so get your butt going. You know, like it just. And trust me, I've taken times where I've had to stop, but um, you just, I don't know, you push through it, and it's, it's not going to kill you. And there's that, of course, the saying, "What doesn't kill you makes you stronger," and I, I really do believe that. 
Um, but not to scare everybody away from obstacle racing. What I do and what you see on TV, I mean, those, that's the competitive, that's the very competitive edge to it. Um, but not, you know, you don't have to go in first thing and do that. You have now. There are a lot of people that run, and running is certainly a part of this. I'm not sure that running is necessarily the entryway into this. It ha- it was for you, but I mean, have you always been strong? Because that that seems to me the other part of this that you it, it would help to be naturally strong or or historically strong that you can then step up and do rope climbs and these arm things and everything else. Have you always been that way? Yeah, it's funny your words historically strong. I, I think I am. I mean, I have. I've had a very active childhood growing up in uh, in rural Nova Scotia. We we were outside. We played. We climbed trees. We you know we did all those physical things. My parents um, had me sort of in whatever sports that I was interested in. So I started off kind of uh, well, everyone Highland dances at least girls too in out east. But then from there I kind of went into swimming and then I did uh, karate um, and I did some wrestling in university. And, and got into weight, uh, weight training, really, at the age of about 17. So I'd always kind of had this upper body strength. Um, and I do go back to my high school days. I was, I was small, and I was, I was bullied. And so for me, when I got into weight training, I really had this. I loved it, but I loved that it gave me strength and that my strength, you know, if you, I was sort of happy to have a physique that if you looked at me, you might think, oh, she could kick my butt uh, and I needed that because of how I was bullied but um, I've never kicked anyone's butt for the record <laughs> <laughs> I just like to look like I could and, and saying that I mean I'm five foot three so really who's going to be scared of that but I just I just liked it I just liked having being physically strong and um, my training you know through my weight training I mean I did bench press I did competitions in that and and it just when I started this it was a great mix for me to, to take my running and my love of running um, and just amp it up with now some, you know, some th- things that I could showcase my upper body strength. So it's a balance. It's hard to train for sometimes, especially when the running events are, are super long, you know, 50K um, that I'm doing on a race, an obstacle course, but also having to then stop and, you know, and throw a spear and do some burpees too. <laughs> All right. So the world championships are uh, this weekend. Do you go down there as thinking to yourself that I am coming home with the gold medal, that I'm going to win this thing? Or how, how do you approach? Because I think this is the first time you've been, right? Um, this, uh, in, in Lake Tahoe, yes. But at uh, 2014 was sort of my, my breakout year in Spartan racing and, I, and, and OCR for that matter. And I did, um, I had a great season. And this, I mean, that was early on in the sport. And there certainly wasn't the competition that there is now. So that year I podiumed every race I went in and I was kind of like, wow, like, look at me go. I'm, you know, I'm in my forties, but I'm doing great. So I went down to the Spartan world championship that year. It was in Vermont and Killington and, um, pretty much got my butt handed to me. And if you knew me, I would just said the other word, but I'm on the radio. Um, <laughs> and I did though, it was so humbling. I went in thinking like, Oh, I'm kind of a big deal. And you know, at least in my little, <laughs> my little sheltered world, but I, I wasn't at all. I mean, I finished, I think, sixth uh, in my age group that year. I, care, I think I was maybe 35th woman. Um, I thought I was going to be in the top 10. Um, and I started the race in, in, you know, in, I think, the top 13. I remember that, doing burpees up on the mountain and, and being on the camera because, you know, oh, this is, you're still in contention here for a medal, so we have to film your burpees to make sure you, know, you don't cheat. But um, so, it, so this is my first return to the world championship now spartan has really 
they have grown massively as a company. They're worldwide. Um, and this event, unlike the one in Vermont where you could just kind of go and sign up, this is about qualifying. So everyone, all the competitors here this weekend will be, they are, they're the best in the world. And I know a lot of them. And so because of that, I know very much what they are capable of. Um, I'm not going in expecting to win anything. I'm going in um, wanting to do well. But um, if I... If I'm not being completely honest, I would love to to hit the podium for the Masters uh, category, so over 40. But um, yeah, I just want to have a really a good race. I want to feel strong and uh, I want to enjoy it. So I don't want to put too much pressure on the outcome so much as just every step of the way. I mean, Lake Tahoe, it's going to be beautiful. Uh, we have to swim on the mountain, which apparently is going to be really cold. <laughs> So I'm looking forward to that. That's what I'm telling myself. You're totally looking forward to going in a lake for a swim in full clothing partway through your race. Perfect. Yeah, Yeah. perfect. Well, listen, we have about one minute left. What are the... you don't know going into this what obstacles they're going to have. They're going to have a spear. We know that. But other than that, you don't really know what obstacles are going to have. What... Very quickly, what would be one you are desperately hoping is not there and what's one that you are desperately hoping they will have? Uh, well, I know that they won't have it, and I'm glad for it, and it's the warp wall. Um, like you see on Ninja Warrior, mm. I have just a, a bad history with warp walls. Well, you're also five foot three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I will face the warp wall at the OCR World Championship in Blue Mountain, which is October uh, 14th weekend. But until then, I'm good not to see it. Um, what are you great at? Uh, you know, my upper body strength, I think, is my is my best advantage in, the, in a race. So the rig or they, in the U.S. they have one called Twister and I haven't done it yet because they haven't had it in Canada. So uh, I have heard that it's a Twister, which is kind of these weird monkey bars that, that spiral as you go through them. And then there's a set of monkey bars that breaks up another two sets of the Twister. So it's going to be long. It's going to be a lot of time hanging. Um, but I love that. I hang all as much as I can. I dead hang. So I'm hoping that goes well for me. Well, we uh, it, if you say it, you say it's on NBC this weekend. Yeah, NBC, um, seven p seven a.m. Uh, Pacific time. So I guess that must be what ten. Ten a.m. Yeah. Um, they'll. I mean, they'll showcase the elite men, the elite women, and and by all means, you have to see it. I mean, it's amazing. If I if I make any uh, get any video time, it would be cool. But otherwise, just to see it, um, it's also a live stream through uh, Spartan website as well, the U.S. website. And uh, if anyone's following uh, my results on, I think on Facebook or Twitter, I have my live results kind of pegged in there too. So you can, you can see that. Lots of ways to keep up. Cynthia yeah. Campanero, really appreciate this. Thanks for the time and really uh, good luck this weekend. I hope it, uh, I hope it is exactly what you're hoping for and the water's not too, too cold. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Scott. And we'll get you to uh, a race this year. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would love to watch from the sideline with a bucket <laughs> of popcorn. And uh, I don't know, are you allowed to have food at then on watch from the sideline at one of these? I don't think so. Oh, well. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. We'll, we'll see. see. Cynthia, thanks for this. No problem. Thank you. Uh, Cynthia Campanero. Again, Spartan, it is um, it is hard to explain, but uh, go take a look. And if nothing else, just go to Reebok Spartan, because they're the big sponsor, Reebok Spartan website, and you can see some video of what I'm talking about, and you get an idea. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.